Our um, passage this morning is Acts 4.32 to um, 5.16. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me, whether you sold the land for such and such a price? And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking a place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, we just thank you that we can read about your work in growing your church and expanding your church. The Lord Jesus said that, that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We see how that you're at work building and even today that you're working to build your church and to bring men and women and boys and girls to yourself. Father, we just pray now for Tom that you would speak through him, that he would give the message that you would have us to hear, that we would, with open hearts, receive your word and apply it and, and go out and be obedient to it. We thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. In the first chapter of uh, Acts, uh, sorry, I should say in the first four chapters of Acts that we've seen thus far, uh, Luke has set before us uh, a magnificent start in the life of Christ's church, this newborn church. In this morning's passage, uh, we're going to see a first painful snapshot of the invasion of worldliness into this new creation of God. But the message of this passage is, again, wonderfully encouraging and illuminating for the church in every era. Luke begins the passage by saying, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And I'll point out that the word translated congregation there is the Greek word from which we get the English word plethora. It means a whole lot. Uh, by this point, we know from earlier in chapter 4 that the, the number of the men in the church now had, had come to 5,000, about 5,000. That's just the men. So this was, uh, this was an, an astonishing increase of growth in the church in a very short period of time. This is the second time Luke identifies the members of the true church by the phrase, those who had believed. The first time he did that was at the end of chapter 2, which was also the first time that Luke spoke of the new believers sharing all their material possessions in common, just as he does here. There in chapter 2, he said they were all together, they were of one mind, and now he says they were of one heart and one soul. The oneness that the Holy Spirit miraculously created in Christ's newborn church pervaded every part of the daily lives of this, these new believers in Jesus Christ, including the financial part. But the sharing of material provision was just one outworking of this marvelous unity that Luke is describing to us. And we should bear in mind that all or very nearly all of these baby Christians that made up the church in Jerusalem at this point were Jews. Uh, before this multitude came to faith in Jesus, they had already had a whole lot in common. The law, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the, the temple, the covenants, not to mention dozens of generations of shared history. All of these things they held in common that set them apart from all the rest of humanity. But, it's, but we should not fail to notice that, that even with all that common ground, 
nothing like the oneness that we behold here had ever happened before. So how did that oneness come about? In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, uh, sorry, uh, Ephesians 4, verses uh, 1 through 6, Paul says this is the miraculous God-sourced unity that we enjoy as members of the body of Jesus Christ. He said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. And then listen, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word preserve means to guard, to keep watch over. And then he says, one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's a lot of ones, seven to be exact. Seven, the number that we find in many places in Scripture referring to the perfection of God's work. This is perfect oneness created by God. And it's His doing. The extraordinary unity that, celebrate, uh, that Luke celebrates here in Christ's church was the work of God alone. And, and, and it's really important. I mean, look at that list of ones. How many of those things that believers had in common were caused by them? Not one. This is not the kind of thing that men muster up or resolve. It is supernatural unity, miraculously created by God alone. God created it, and he commands us to guard it, to keep watch over it on his behalf. The generosity that comes sharply into focus in our passage this morning proceeds from that God-sourced unity. It's not the other way around. We don't become one because we share our material provisions with one another. We share the things that God has put in our hands with each other because God has made us one. That generosity is an expression. It is an outworking of the very nature of the church as God created the church to be and of the nature of each member of the church. When we are generous toward each other, we are simply reflecting, we are working out that which God has made true of us individually and corporately. There's an adjective in this passage that ties the whole passage together marvelously and powerfully. It's the adjective great. It translates a Greek word megas, and that's a, a pretty uh, familiar word actually to us English speakers because we, we change it up just a little bit and we use it as a prefix to indicate that something is great and probably one of the most common uses of that prefix that we know in English within the church is mega church, right? But I want to point out that in this passage, it's no accident that that prefix is not applied, that word is not applied in this passage to the number of members in this church, that it exploded in size in such a very short period of time. That's not what God points to here through Luke as great, uh, something that's great about the church. 
See, God's concept of a mega church, which means a great church, is quite a lot different than, than uh, how the modern evangelical church envisions that word. In this passage, there are three characteristics of the newborn church that, label, that Luke labels as great. Those three things are power, grace, and fear. Great power, great grace, and great fear. Specifically, great power in the church's witness of the resurrected Christ, great grace in our care for one another in the household of God, and great fear of God in all things. Fear, by the way, that actually draws the mind and heart and soul of every believer to the one and only source of all blessing and of all curse. We'll talk about each of these things. That third characteristic of a great church, great fear, consumes the biggest portion of this passage. Now, the first two times the word great appears here are both in verse 33. Let's start with the first part of that verse. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony. That means bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The most compelling testimony of this first local church in the world was accomplished through those who had actually seen the resurrected Christ. And there were a whole lot of them if we look at 1 Corinthians 15 and Acts chapter 1. In Peter's first two sermons, he explicitly talked about the first-hand witness of the resurrected Christ that he and his fellow apostles and very many others had, had beheld. But the power of the newborn church's witness extended far beyond just the 12 apostles, and it extended beyond those who had seen, had visibly seen Jesus after his resurrection. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, Luke said, All the saints in Jerusalem, all the saints, were, quote, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness, a bold and powerful witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, they prayed for a bold witness, and that's exactly what God gave to them. The power behind that witness that spread the gospel of the resurrected Christ throughout the Roman Empire like wildfire, that power, that great power, was and still is the Holy Spirit, indwelling every believer and indwelling his church. The second attribute of Christ's church, the second attribute of Christ's church that Luke describes as great in this passage is grace. He says in, this, in the second part of verse 33, abundant grace, literally great grace, the exact same word, the same adjective, great grace was upon them all. In the next four verses, Luke then tells us in very specific terms how that great grace was put on display. First, he sets before us a pattern of, of behavior that characterized the church as a whole, and then he provides one excellent example of that behavior in the person of Barnabas. First, the pattern. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and would bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need, as any had need. 
When Luke first introduced this same pattern of generosity in the church in chapter 2, he said, quote, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. You see that the, the determining factor in how the money was handled was it was given to those who had need. The goal here was not egalitarianism, meaning it was not that everyone would end up with exactly the same amount of material provision. The goal was that no one would lack what was needed so that there was not a needy person among them. In chapter 2, right after Luke described the sharing of property and possessions that was going on in the infant church to ensure that all needs were met, he said this, he said, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they, these new believers, were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Gladness and sincerity of heart. See, true generosity by its very nature cannot be mandated. Now, you might say it has to be chosen, but even that is not quite right. The God-sourced unity in this church that we observe in chapters 2 and 4 is not the product of a commitment, a resolve to be generous. It is the product of an irresistible drive in the inner man, in the heart and soul, to be generous. And that irresistible drive comes from being the recipients of God's amazing grace in Jesus Christ. Luke does not say the church was gracious. He says great grace was upon the church. It wasn't the believer's power that made their witness mighty. It was the Spirit's power in the believers. And it wasn't the believer's grace. It was God's grace lavished upon the believers. Being a recipient of the unfathomable riches of Christ together with all your fellow saints produces generosity toward your fellow saints. See, it's not my riches in Christ. It's our riches in Christ. The true riches, of course, are not material. But it is those true riches that make us hold very loosely to material things. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not saying that there is no element of decision or commitment when it comes to the specific outworking of the generosity that God creates in the hearts of his people. I'm saying that, the, that, the, that what drives that decision is not something that's mustered up or resolved or decided. It is caused by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers who are responding to and are controlled by the amazing grace of God that has been lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. Now, we shouldn't miss the mechanism of the giving that we find here. How the gifts were given and distributed within the church. There are two ways or, or mechanisms, if you will, by which Christians can meet the material needs of other Christians, and they're both good. One is directly, Christian to Christian, and the other is through the church. 
Again, while both are clearly good in the eyes of God, and we find both happening in the New Testament, it is the giving that is done through the church that most edifies the church rather than the individual. By laying the proceeds from the sale of houses and property at the apostles' feet, the saints were letting the Holy Spirit direct what and how much was given to address each specific need within the body through the apostles. In the post-apostolic era, that same decision-making is done through elders appointed over each local church. That is a good and gracious provision of God to ensure that financial gifts go where they ought to go. At CBC, we have often run into scenarios in which some individual has spoken to multiple people in the body about a given need that they have, and that's perfectly fine. But then two or more of those people resolve to meet the need directly, and that's fine too. But what about what about other needs in the body that perhaps should have a higher priority or urgency? What about needs in the body that have not been made known to many people? I, I, I hate to say it, but we've seen a few instances over the years as elders in which an individual who had a specific need did not let others they had spoken to know that the need had been met. So the same need ended up being covered over two or three times without the knowledge of any of the other people who knew of the need and had contributed to it. That's not just dishonest on the part of the one receiving the gifts, it's also lousy stewardship of the church's gifts given to care for the needs of the flock. But even, even when there is great integrity on the part of both the givers and the receivers, of a gift, which is almost always the case in our experience. It is the gifts given to the church through the church that most greatly edify, that most build up the church rather than just the individual who gives and the individual who receives. And this is worth thinking about. We see this pattern here. We see this pattern again in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, uh, and really that whole issue of Gathering, Paul gathering gifts from the many churches, Gentile churches overwhelmingly, to give to this church of Jews in Jerusalem later on when they became impoverished, especially because of severe persecution. Um, that, that, that was orchestrated by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Now, in verse 35, of chapter 4 here, and again in verse 37, Luke tells us that those who sold houses or other property brought the proceeds and they laid them at the apostles' feet. Now, in biblical, in biblical times, when a subject of a king, someone subservient to a king, presented a, a gift as a tribute, acknowledging the sovereignty of that king, that gift was typically laid at the feet of that ruler. Once a tribute was given to a king, that was irreversible. Nobody ever asked the king to give part of it back. The subject was taking his hands off of that material wealth forever. Here, in this passage, the one to whom the tribute is given is the king of kings. And it is laid at the feet of his representatives, the apostles. 
When you and I present a gift to what we call our benevolence fund that is designated to care for material needs within the body, and for that matter, when we put gifts in in the offering basket to support the ministries of this church, we are taking our hands off that portion of what God has given to us. And we are handing that, that money over to under-shepherds, imperfect men entrusted to, to diligently and faithfully serve the one chief shepherd and his purposes. But those gifts are, are not given to the elders of CBC. hope everybody knows that. They are given to God. And by the way, it has been long-standing practice ever since the inception of this church that the elders never know who gave how much. The gifts are to be given joyfully with gladness and sincerity of heart, or they are not to be given at all. God loves a cheerful giver, and he has no use for anything else. When we give to God's people and to God's work, we are engaging in an exceedingly healthy spiritual exercise. We take our hands off that portion of what came from God in the first place and belongs to God along with everything else that we have, (laughs) and we're trusting God through that act as the one and only source of everything that we need in this life. We'll come back to that in a moment. Here in Acts 4, after laying out this pattern of generous care for the needy in the church by other members of the church through the oversight of the apostles, Luke then sets forth one very specific and very personal example of how this was to be done. A man well known to the church by this time, a man by the name of Barnabas, Uh, I should say by the time this book was written, well known to the church. Luke says, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. It's exactly the same pattern as the pattern, right? Now this is our first introduction to the godly and faithful Barnabas, who ends up being mentioned 27 times in the New Testament, 23 of those times right here in the book of Acts. Luke says his name means son of encouragement. We find out as we will find out as we proceed through the book that he was he was appropriately named. Luke then moves from the excellent positive example of Barnabas to the exceedingly negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. That, by the way, is the Texas pronunciation of both of those names. In chapter five, verses one and two. Luke writes, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. Remember those words. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Structurally, externally, he followed the pattern. Internally, he didn't follow it at all. The fact that Ananias and Sapphira are in collusion in this sin is explicitly declared by Luke. This was not a case of one spouse having evil motives and the other one just sort of being dragged into it unwillingly. This is teamwork at its worst. 
It's pretty clear that God gave Peter a miraculous view into the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira in this episode. They declared that they would sell their house for a certain amount and they would give all of the proceeds from that sale to the church through the apostles for the care of the saints. But when the sale was completed, they kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. Now, it's conceivable that somebody in the community knew the true amount of the sale and smoked these guys out to Peter, but Luke says nothing about that, so we should not make that assumption. What actually seems to be the case here is that the Holy Spirit made it known to Peter that they were lying. And that brings up a very important point. That is miraculous and highly unusual. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the first five verses, Paul makes it very, very clear that you and I, as brothers and sisters in the church, do not get to see and render judgment on what is in other men's and women's hearts. God doesn't give that, that insight to us. We, the only thing we know about someone's heart is what we see in their behavior. We all have to wait until that future time when God will, quote, bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So the insight that Peter received here was supernatural, and it was miraculous, and it is not the kind of thing that we should expect. Peter did not spend the rest of his life reading people's minds any more than the apostles spent the rest of their lives speaking in languages they had never learned. This was not a spiritual gift. It was a judgment miracle done by God through Peter. Why is that important? Why am I harping on this? Beloved, on the authority of Paul's clear declaration, I can tell you that any Christian who tells you that God has given him or her the spiritual gift of regularly being able to read people's minds is lying to you. This has happened often in the modern evangelical church. In fact, I, I know of one exceedingly prominent and influential pastor who was, whose, whose career and ministry took a dive partially because of this. Because he, he declared and represented that he was able to do this. And he wasn't. It would be an easy out, let's go on to, some, to leave that and let's move on. It would be an easy out for us to assume that Ananias and Sapphira were unredeemed sinners who had crept in the, in the believing community. And we could say, I'm glad I never have, have to worry about making God that angry. But friends, any notion that real blood-bought Christians would never be capable of, capable of doing something this underhanded is nonsense. If you and I don't take this as a warning to us, we are missing the message and we are wasting our time in this passage. The entire context here is about what was going on inside the brand new church of Jesus Christ. Up to this point, it has all been positive. But if there was a honeymoon phase in the marriage of Christ and his church, it was a fairly short honeymoon. We discover here that the struggle against worldliness 
within the spiritual household of God that the New Testament epistles all address started very early. The indictment that Peter levels against Ananias and Sapphira is not that they were pretenders to the faith that they professed. The indictment was that they lied to the Holy Spirit and put God to the test. And the penalty imposed by God against each of them was instant physical death. No discussion. Death. This is not the the only place in the New Testament that speaks of God taking the physical life of a believer as a temporal versus eternal judgment for a specific sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul confronts the believers in Corinth for allowing some of their fellow believers to demean and trivialize the Lord's table by treating it as an opportunity for gluttony and drunkenness and rampant selfishness. Because that church had not dealt with such a grievous insult to the remembrance of Christ's death and nipped it in the bud, Paul said to them, For this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That means they were physically dead. And then he says, and listen to this, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we, the people of God, when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. The judgment that we as believers face when we commit sin sufficiently grievous against God to warrant that judgment is temporal discipline rather than eternal judgment. God may go so far as to take the physical life of one of his children to put an end to a given sin or maybe even simply to make it crystal clear to his church that that sin will not be allowed to stand. Either case puts an end to the sin. But beloved, there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus removed the possibility of condemnation when he canceled out the debt of all of our sins at the cross. Now look carefully at Peter's indictment against Ananias and Sapphira on Christ's behalf. First, Ananias, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold... Was it not under your control? See, this is not the end of private ownership of property. Don't let anybody tell you that. And then he says, why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Don't miss the Trinitarian connection there. First, Peter says that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, and then he says you have not lied to men, but to God. The Holy Spirit is God the third person of the triune God. The statement, you have not lied to men but to God, is Peter keeping the church's focus where it belongs. Uh, Compare that with uh, Psalm 51 when King David, after being found out and exposed in the sins of uh, adultery, conspiracy, and murder, cries out to God in contrition and repentance, and he says, against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It wasn't that David had not 
wronged any human being. Here's what was going on. It wasn't, it wasn't the nature and character of his fellow human beings that he violated. It was the nature and character of God. After about three hours here in Acts 5, Ananias' wife Sapphira came in not knowing what had happened. Peter questioned her, giving her every opportunity to come clean and end her participation in the sin, but she held fast to her lie. And so Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? And then he says, behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet, and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, who had been buried very quickly already. That whole feet thing is significant in this passage. We take our gifts and lay them at the apostles' feet. These, these two insulted God, and so God dropped them at the apostles' feet, and they were carried out by the feet of those who were ready to do God's bidding. Some seem to think here that the nature of the test of God was something like, God, if you're real, I dare you to strike me dead for doing what I'm about to do. <laughs> I think it was a lot more subtle than that, and, it's, and we need to pay attention to what's going on here. Testing God happens when human beings demand that God prove on our terms what he declares to be true of himself after he's already proven it on his terms. Such testing of God always, always is accompanied by a denial of the proof God has already given us on his terms to display his own character. One foundational passage about testing God is in Psalm 78. The psalmist remembers the rebellious heart of the Israelites during their time in the wilderness after God proved his faithfulness, his power, his covenant love for Israel by delivering them out of slavery in Egypt by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. Verse 11 of Psalm 78 says, they forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. They forgot. Then it recounts many of those amazing works of God's faithfulness to his covenant people that we read in Psalm 136 this morning. And then starting in verse 17, the psalmist indicts Israel for putting God to the test. And listen to these words. It says, yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. Then they spoke against God, and they said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing, so they acknowledged something God did. And then he said, can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Therefore, the Lord heard and was full of wrath, and a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger mounted against Israel. Listen, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation that he had already done and that he would continue to do because he is who he is. The test with which Israel sinned grievously against God in the wilderness was demanding that God prove his faithfulness on their terms according to their desires. That's exactly what... Psalm 78, 18 says, according to their desires. And the ugly root of that test of God was that they did not believe in God and they did not trust in his salvation. 
If Ananias and Sapphira had trusted God as the ever-faithful source of all well-being, who had already proven that faithfulness and goodness beyond all doubt at the cross of Christ, they would never have done this wicked thing. By holding back some of what they promised to give to God, they proved that they were trusting themselves for their well-being instead of their Creator and Savior. But their course of action here was not just a denial of God's goodness, it was also a denial of God's omniscience. Anyone who thinks they can actually pull a fast one on God and not be found out is insane. That's a denial of reality. So is the assumption that you and I have any control whatsoever over any facet of our well-being at any time. We control absolutely nothing. Yes, God commands us to work hard and to work diligently as instruments of his provision for ourselves, for our families. He says, if someone won't work, neither let them eat. But we will never be more than and we will never be less than instruments in the hands of the one and only source of well-being who has ever existed. We don't have time to go further with that, but I would suggest to all of us that we spend some time considering the ways that we put God to the test, that we demand that he prove his character and his goodness again when he has already proven it perfectly in Christ. In the final verses of chapter 4, Luke presented two great things that the Holy Spirit produced in the newborn church of Jesus Christ. Great power, great grace. Now, as we've seen in chapter 5, he sets before us a third effect of the Holy Spirit's work in the newborn church, and that's great fear. Verse 5, chapter 5 says, As Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. Verse 11 says, And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. That was after Sapphira died. What we need to notice is that both the believers who were in Jerusalem and the unbelievers who were in Jerusalem who heard about God's very decisive judgment against these two were driven to great fear. But there is a stark difference in this passage if you look at how that fear then played out, how it was manifested. Verse 12 says that the believers who were gathered at the portico of Solomon inside the temple compound continued to witness many signs and wonders. They, they continued to witness many signs and wonders that God was doing through the apostles. Even the fearsome judgment of God against Ananias and Sapphira did not make these believers stop coming together. They still went to Solomon's portico in the temple day after day. Verse 13 says, But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. Now the phrase none of the rest refers to the unbelievers who were in Jerusalem. The unbelievers were no longer witnessing the miracles going on there at Solomon's portico because after the incident with Ananias and Sapphira, they were gone. 
The terrible fearsomeness of God had been put on vivid display between these two, in these two back-to-back judgment miracles that resulted in the instant deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. That terrifying demonstration of the power and holiness of God was to keep all who would not trust in Jesus as far away from these Christians as they could get. See, for those who are resolved in unbelief, the fearsomeness of God drives them away. It is fear that repels. But for those who are the chosen of God, those who had or soon would come to faith in Jesus, that exact same display of God's terrifying power over life and death kept them coming together even as it continued drawing many, many new believers into the household of God's redeemed. That's the fear that attracts. The object of the fear is the same in both cases. The response to it is dramatically different. The certainty that God alone controls all blessing and all curse that happens in all of his creation is the very reality that causes his people to cling to him. As my brother Greg said to me earlier this week, to us whom God, upon whom God has lavished his grace in Jesus Christ, our God is beautifully fearsome. And he's always fearsome. If a megachurch means a church that is great in God's eyes rather than men's eyes, we can count on the fact that such a church will be marked out by greatness in these three things. Great power of God in our witness. Great grace of God in our generous care for one another. And great fear of God manifested in hearts that are continually drawn to God as the one and only source of every good thing and every perfect gift. That, beloved, is God's idea of a megachurch. Dear Father, we ask that you would grant us great power in our witness to the crucified and resurrected Jesus, great grace manifested in open-handed generosity toward one another with all that you put into our hands, and great fear that draws us always to you and to you alone as the source of all provision, all protection, and all that is excellent in this age and in the age to come. We ask this in the name and for the sake of Jesus. Amen.